Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Well, I want to start by thanking you guys. You guys have ministered to me this morning through your singing uh, to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just have weeks where my soul is tired. Uh, It's like it's a mixture of bad news and uh, maybe people letting you down or just life kind of throwing curveballs at you. Sometimes you just like you're not physically tired, but your soul is just tired. And uh, I had one of those weeks. I mean, that's just to be honest with you guys. That's kind of where I am right now. And uh, what I used to think about my job was that I always had to be the, the guy who set the, the mode for what we were doing. I had to be the one who was the lead worshiper, so to speak. And if I didn't show up every week like I was jazzed up on Red Bull, then everybody would leave the church. And that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself, uh, especially in my role where I get up here and I speak. And uh, what I've learned to do uh, through a lot of painful moments and, and what I'm still learning to do is to realize that I am a part of the church just like you are a part of the church. And in moments like this, when our souls are tired, we don't need to isolate and run away from the church, but we need to come into the community of faith. Because when my faith is low, your faith builds my faith. And when your faith is low, my faith is to build your faith. And we feed off of one another. And as we were singing, and as I heard you guys declaring these truths about the gospel, declaring these truths about God, I was reminded of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, Pay careful attention then to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So I want to thank you guys for singing those hymns to me. Reminding me of the glorious grace I have in Jesus Christ. Reminding me of the inheritance I have in Christ Jesus. And so as I stand up here and I preach and I give you everything I have. Some Sundays it's more than other Sundays. What I know is that we're family. And I love that. Because just as I come to encourage you, you guys come to encourage me. Now if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezra. And uh, we can turn the lights back on so people can see their Bibles. I know, whoever's running the light switch today is really getting a workout. Uh, Ezra chapter 9 is where we are. I think it's page 256. Caden did a good job reading that for us. Uh, I didn't make him read the whole chapter. We'll try to walk through the, the whole chapter, or at least the majority of it. And I want to primarily focus on one uh, side of it. And if I have time, uh, I'll talk about the whole thing. But I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter Uh, And that will give us kind of a context for what's going on. If you'll remember, uh, what has happened up to this point is uh, we have like one side of the lights. We have one light on. Uh, (laughs) That's so he doesn't have to change anymore. Yeah, just just leave half on, half off. Okay, deal with it, Blake. so as we remember last week, Ezra has led a group of people back to Jerusalem from Babylon. It was a four-month journey. They've walked 900 miles in the blistering heat. And uh, they arrive back and uh, Ezra is there to restore the right worship of God's people. And what we see in this text is that Ezra is going to get a report. And it's a really bad report. It's a report that literally makes him tear the hair out of his head. If you've ever been frustrated with your children, you might know what Ezra feels like here. And then after this report, we see Ezra's response to the report. And we see then Ezra's prayer 
uh, in regards to this report. And it gives us a great uh, kind of pattern for the way that we ought to be people who, when we see that we're out of line with God's will, what we ought to be doing, how we ought to repent and what repentance actually looks like. Repentance is one of those words that we throw around a lot in church and nobody knows what it means. But I'm supposed to say it and I'm supposed to say it often and I'm supposed to say it while I pound the pulpit. You know, repent. And everybody's like, okay, I'm going to try to repent. But what does repent mean? Well, Ezra shows us what repentance truly looks like. So keep that in mind as we read through. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 through 15. I'm a speed reader, so it will not take us that long. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me, me being Ezra, and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, these are the leaders, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples who, whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Perserites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, as well as the Termites. I added one to make sure you're paying attention. All right. Verse 2. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. It's never good when the leaders are the ones that are messing up. There's two types of leaders. You can lead people to good things. You can lead people to bad things. And we see here the leaders are leading the way in a wrong way. Verse 3. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and beard and sat down devastated. Now, I love, uh, if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah's one book, we separated them into two books, but it was one continuous story. In Nehemiah chapter 13, when we see Nehemiah's side of this thing, uh, Ezra pulls his own hair out. Nehemiah goes around and starts pulling out the people uh, of the other people. So I don't know what kind of parent you are. You know, when your kids are bad, do you go pull out their hair or are you pulling out your own hair? We see the two different things here. Some of you are like, I don't pull out anybody's hair. You're normal. Verse 4. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat down devastated until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, and here we see Ezra's prayer. My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you. My God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our fathers until present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering and open shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended his grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, saying the land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding peoples have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters from your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, Though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive. 
Should we break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant or survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. Here we are in your presence, God, and yet we're not supposed to be here. How did this happen? Now, as we come into the text today, I'm going to pray for us in a moment, then we'll jump in. What I want to focus on is kind of more of the theological side of this. Uh, I want us to be smart Bible studiers. So when we come to texts like this and we see something that's weird or doesn't make sense, we probably ought not just skip over it. We should say, now, why is that there? And the part that's weird about this text and has been misused in this text is the part about marrying. It seems like the big sin is that they married somebody who was not Israelite. And there's a terrible history of this text being used to say this is why white people shouldn't marry black people or Hispanic people shouldn't marry Chinese people. And that's an awful thing to do out of this text. And yet it has been done by so many people. And uh, in reality, those people are foolish because they don't read their Bibles because we see interracial marriages happen throughout the Bible. What this text is talking about is not racial at all. It's more about religion. It's more about worldview. So we're going to look at four reasons why Ezra says that it is a sin and why Ezra is so concerned that the Israelites are marrying these people from other countries. But first, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father God, I need you today. I need you every time I preach. Uh, Lord, I can do these on my own, but it's a lot better when you help me. Uh, Lord, and the only thing that I have that is valuable to say to these people are the words that you give me to say. God, I pray that as I preach your word, I would pull out those things that are supposed to be pulled out of this text. God, I am biased. I am fallible. I make mistakes with the word of God. And sometimes I think your word is saying one thing and it's really saying another thing. And so, God, I I just ask for help. I pray for clarity in in the minds of my listeners today, that they would hear those things that are true and those things that are not true would be blown away like the chaff in the wind. And God, I pray that as I work hard to preach, they would work hard to listen. You'd give them ears to hear what you want them to hear today. God, it is in your name and it is with your power that I preach. And I now pray. Amen. I was wondering why I couldn't see, and then I remembered I forgot to put my readers on. <laughs> All right. So as we jump in, I want to look at the, the first three verses primarily. That's why I had Caden uh, read them. And then also verses 11 through 15. We see the part where Ezra tells them not to marry all these weird names that end in the ites. And uh, so we wonder, you know, why is that? And I think there's four reasons, as I said earlier. And the first reason is there's a personal kind of reason for why God does not want the Israelites to marry from these other countries. It's a personal concern that Ezra has for them. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. It says, Now our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, saying the land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding people have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. In other words, what Ezra is worried about and what God is worried about is as they marry these people from these other countries, these other religious ideas, these other worldviews, it's not so much that the Israelites will help them come to a a right worldview that God wants for his people. No, what's more likely is that they will pick up on the wrong worldview of the pagans. And really to understand this text and understand a lot of the conflict that we see in our world, we have to understand that every single person, whether they are religious or not, has a worldview. And when we think of religion, what we often think of is uh, the practices or the rituals that people do or the the kind of superstitious beliefs that people have. But really what a a religion is, is it might be those things, but it's also and probably primarily a worldview. Religion gives us lenses through which we see the world. 
What do you view? How do you view marriage? How do you view sexuality? How do you view money? All of these things come from our world view. So whether you are a secularist and you have secularism and that's the lens through you see the world through, that will affect the way you see marriage. That will affect the way you see money and everything in this life. Maybe your emotionalism. You know, everything's about feelings. That affects the way I spend my money. That affects the way I view marriage and who should be married and who ought not be married and all these things. And if I am a Christian, then that ought to affect my worldview. In fact, that is a huge part of Christianity. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 tells us to renew our minds so that we would have the mind of Christ, so to speak. That we would see the world that way Jesus sees the world. And that's my goal every time I get up here to preach. I'm trying to refine our worldviews because often, actually for all of us, our worldviews are fuzzy. There's things that we believe, but we don't know why we believe them because we haven't investigated them. We know, hey, I, I don't think that this thing is right, but we don't know why we don't think it is right. And oftentimes worldviews can begin to clash and we can't actually have a reasonable argument because we're seeing the world through completely different lenses. I'll give you a completely non-controversial opinion. Uh, not, not an opinion. I'm not giving you an opinion. Non-controversial illustration. And uh, this is not political at all, but right now it, I think it will probably catch all of your attentions because it's in our national discourse a lot. Uh, and that is the debate of abortion. And what I see in abortion is people are arguing about things that actually aren't the right things to argue about. The, the right things to argue about are completely different. It's a worldview issue. For instance, I, I believe that there's very few people, probably no people, who are neither pro-choice or pro-life. Like if you look at the opposite side of that, are, are pro-life people actually pro-not choosing? No. I mean, I don't want people to choose whatever they want to do. For instance, like if you want to cut off your thumb, there's no laws against that. It's your thumb. If you want to get a face tattoo, that's fine. I thought about getting one myself. My wife said I'd look awful, so I didn't do it. I'm just kidding. I would never do that. I, I, I'm, I'm literally the whitest person ever. A face tattoo would be terrible for me to do. But if there's no laws against it, and I don't think there ought to be. Why? Because I, I believe I have choice over this. Just because I'm pro-life doesn't mean I'm not pro-choice. And on the other side, those who would say they're pro-choice, none of them are actually pro-death. I've never met a, a pro-choice person who's like, I think we should just kill people. Yeah. It's not normally what they say. It's a worldview issue. And the, the view that they're viewing differently is life. What is life? When does life begin? See, if we all agreed when life began, there would actually be no debate about this. The reason why I, as a Christian, stand as a pro-life person is because I believe that from the womb, God is knitting us together. That conception is a miracle. And by the way, I don't know how you don't see that when you go get one of those sonograms. Like that, that, that is my daughter already within my wife. I, I, I can't, she is not a part of Taylor. She makes her own mind up about things. That's why when Taylor lays down and she's finally ready to go to sleep, she starts kicking. They're sinners from the womb. I believe that because of my worldview. I believe there's a God and I believe God decided when Blakely would be born. I believe God is knitting Blakely together now. And somebody with a different worldview would say, no, I don't believe that is life. And you see how we can't even begin to argue. Because if I'm arguing with somebody who doesn't believe that God exists or God creates this thing, and I, my whole argument is based upon that, how could we ever come to an agreement? This is what happens in our world all the time. We have worldview clashes. And by the way, this is uh, also what happens in a lot of marriages. Marriages that go sideways are not just from small disagreements. Oftentimes it's because we fundamentally view money differently. We fundamentally believe raising kids should go this way and you think it's this way. And so it creates this clash. And it's why sometimes you argue and you argue and you argue. And it's like, I, 
I cannot get on the same ground as you as much as I want to. Why? Because we're fundamentally viewing this differently. We both know what we want, but we don't necessarily know why we want it. We don't know the worldview that kind of undergirds what is going on here. And as a Christian, what I'm supposed to do is to look at the life of Jesus, to look at the words of Jesus, the word of God, and allow that to shape and to form my worldview. And when my worldview is not in line with Jesus's worldview, guess who's wrong? It's not Jesus. It's me. My worldview ought to change. Now, it's not as simple as reading the Bible and just doing what it says, because the Bible is a big book. I don't know if you've noticed this. And there's a lot of weird stuff in there. And a lot of people do a lot of weird stuff with the Bible which is why people like me are employed. I'm supposed to study the Bible. I'm supposed to teach the Bible so that we can have our worldview conform together. It's why we need one another because none of us are God. None of us is the spirit of God. We need as the body of Christ to come together and to talk about these things. And so I preach something and what you all ought to be doing when I'm preaching something is looking in your Bible and saying, wait a minute, Blake, two plus two doesn't equal five. I think you're wrong. And you get to tell me that I'm wrong. In fact, I love it when you guys say, hey, Blake, I think you missed this thing. I was reading and it looked like you just completely skipped verse four. And verse four would probably tell us more about this thing or that thing. And see, we can have conflict that is actually good when we do it this way because we have the same worldview. We believe that this is the basis of our faith. We might disagree about what it says, but our worldview is conformed to the will of God from the word of God because Jesus Christ. And this is why I believe the worldview of Jesus Christ over the worldview of, say, Oprah Winfrey, who has her own worldview. Uh, It's why I believe the the view of Jesus over uh, Muhammad. Why? Well, because uh, Oprah is going to die and she will not rise again. Muhammad died and guess where he is? He's dead. Jesus said he was God, claimed to be God, said he was going to die and rise again. He died and we can't find Jesus' body. Why? Because he's not there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne. I want to listen to that guy. I want to listen to the guy who defeated death. The one who showed me what God is like. The ultimate reality of all things. I am not smarter than that guy. And the moment I think I'm smarter than him is the moment I need to humble myself in a severe type of way. This is what is going on in this text. And so this is why Ezra is very concerned and God is very concerned about his people marrying these people from other worldviews. Because they're going to clash. And here's what you should assume if you're about to get married. You should always assume that you cannot change the mind or the heart of somebody else. This is true with friends and everything. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we had the, uh, the old flirt to convert. You saw a girl you liked, she was pretty, but she wasn't really a Christian. You thought, well, I'll do a little evangelism, if you know what I mean. And uh, it never works. It, it, doesn't, it, just, it does not work. How many of you have ever tried to change your spouse? Does that work? No. You cannot change them. You can't do it. And if you get into a relationship, whether it be a friendship or a marriage, thinking you can be the savior, you are going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. It's not going to go well for you. And your marriage will be like having two captains pulling on different directions of the steering wheel. When you get married, in in biblical terms, it is two people becoming one. I like what Dave Ramsey says. He says, you know, you go from uh, speaking English to speaking French. You go from I-I to wee-wee. Everything is ours now. This isn't my money. It's our money. It's not my future. It's our future. These aren't my kids. It's our kids. And if you guys have different views about how the R should be, you got one person trying to go right on the steering wheel, one person trying to go left on the steering wheel, and all you do there is crash because you're not going anywhere. Then this is what God is saying is going to happen. You're not going to change them. And worse yet than that, while you should always assume that people 
will not be changed by you. You should probably also assume that you have more than what you know, the ability to be changed by those people. Uh, Oftentimes, the people that we think we're helping are hurting us if we get too close to them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have friends that aren't Christians. I don't want to go too far with this. You should have friends that are not Christians. But I'm talking about your closest relationships in life. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, do not be deceived. Good. Oh, we got an Amber alert. Uh, That always throws me off. ADHD is a heck of a thing. Do not be. (laughs) Do not be deceived. Rain it back in. Do not be deceived. Uh, Good morals are corrupted by bad company. That's why he also says that we should not be unequally yoked with people who are uh, of different uh, worldviews, different purposes. Because they're trying to go right, you're trying to go left, and light cannot have fellowship with the darkness. And this is something we all understand when it comes to our, uh, our physical health, because uh, we don't, none of us put a sick person, none of us put a sick person with, a, I think like Siri's trying to talk to me right now. Siri and I have different worldviews. Siri needs to listen to the pastor. Amen. I seriously do not even know where I was. That was so much distraction in 15 seconds. If you guys are inside my head right now, you'd be concerned. You know what they teach you to do in pastor school when you don't remember where you were? You just go to the next verse and you you just pretend like you knew what you were saying. So number one is a personal concern. Because if you get married to these people, there, it came back to me. We don't put the healthy kids with the sick kids because we know that the health is not going to spread to the sick kids. We keep the healthy kids away. Why? Because sickness is what spreads. And this is so true. I try to tell every youth student I can this. I think it's like the most important thing you can learn early in life is that your friends have a huge impact on who you will be as a person. Uh, In Proverbs, uh, it tells us that the one who hangs out with a fool doesn't necessarily become a fool himself, but he suffers the harm of fools. You don't have to be the fool to suffer the harm of fools. A lot of times kids will tell me, yeah, I know my friends are doing this thing or that thing, but I'm just going to be a help to those friends. I'm not going to participate in whatever debauchery they are participating in. But the reality is, is when the cops show up, it doesn't matter whether you're participating or not. When the person who's driving has been drinking, it doesn't matter whether you've been drinking or not. You suffer the harm that a fool suffers. If you hang around with enough squirrels, you're going to get hit by some nuts. <laughs> the lady behind the curtain laughed at that one. It's just the truth. So we have to be careful who we, who, we, un, who we put ourselves in union with, especially marriage, but I think even all of our closest relationships because they often have more of an influence on us than we can imagine. And so Ezra has a personal concern. Number two, uh, Ezra has a generational concern. It's not just about the personal concern. It's a generational concern. Uh, verse 12 in Ezra chapter 9 says this. So do not give you give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. So he's no longer worried necessarily about them. Now as he's moved on, he's worried about their sons and their daughters, the generations that will come. Because here's the thing, you might get married to somebody of a different worldview and it probably will affect your worldview more than what you think it will. But let's say it doesn't. Well, you still have another parent with a different worldview and you're raising your kids and those kids will then be uh, of a different worldview. And if you don't think that that actually happens, you're kind of crazy. Now, a lot of people say, I want to let my kid decide for themselves what religion uh, that they participate in. And I want to say that makes no sense to me. Now, if you by religion, you mean just like the practices that you do 
uh, or kind of the superstitious beliefs that you have. Okay, uh, that's fine. Whatever. My daughter might be a Methodist. My daughter might be a you know Church of the Nazarene. I don't I don't know what she'll do. She should be a part of my church if she's smart. Um, she will be a part of my church till she's eighteen uh, or paying her own bills. But after that, I mean, her religious practices are hers. I, you know, so I kind of get the idea behind that. But if you're talking about a worldview, that's your job as a parent. To teach your kids what is right and what is wrong. You want your kids to know what to do and what not to do. And you want them to know why they ought to be doing it. You're forming their worldview while you have them with you. This is exactly what uh, Deuteronomy says, which is way before Ezra. When Deuteronomy uh, outlaws the marriage of of the Israelites to other countries, it says this. This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them, and you must not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your sons. Why? Why? Well, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their carved images. Do not mess around. Only God's worldview is the worldview that we ought to follow. It is the will of God that we ought to pursue. And a part of the problem with the church uh, often, and in my own soul as a leader, this happens to me, is I often want to kind of incorporate what other people are believing in the world because it's a lot more easy for me to do that because people get upset sometimes when you lay down God's worldview. When you talk about money, you talk about sexuality, you talk about power, you end up making everybody mad because God's will, Jesus' will, if you will follow it, will put you in an upside down place. You're upside down from the world. So if your identity is primarily a Republican and you happen to be a Christian, your Christian worldview is going to suffer. If you are a Democrat as your primary uh, identity and then the Christian is your secondary identity, your Christian worldview is going to suffer. Now, it's okay to be a Republican. It's okay to be a Democrat as long as you have the order correct. I am a Christian and then I'm a Democrat. I'm a Christian and then I'm a Republican. It's why, in fact, we don't have American flags on this stage. A lot of churches you go to do. I am not against being patriotic at all. I love America. I've been to other countries. I don't want to live in another country. But I need a reminder every week that my allegiance is not primarily to the United States of America. My allegiance is primarily to Jesus Christ and His kingdom. And if America goes right and Jesus is going left, I'm going left. Because here's a little secret. Long after America crumbles, Jesus Christ's kingdom will be as strong as ever. And in the new kingdom, in the new earth... There will not be American flags planted. We will be one nation under Jesus Christ. And I've got to keep that in mind because the moment I let these other worldviews begin to influence my Christian worldview, I, in fact, lose the Christian worldview altogether. So it's okay to be those things, but you better go back to the source of Jesus Christ and see what he says about it. And by the way, here's how you know that you're doing this. You'll be kind of an oddball wherever you find yourself. You'll never fully fit into any group. If you fully fit into a group, it might just be because... You kind of have their worldview instead of Jesus' worldview because Jesus, Jesus made everybody mad. That's why they killed him. There was not, there was not a group that Jesus had that didn't, wasn't mad at him for some sort of reason. He, he united enemies. He united the Israelites and the Roman Empire to conspire to kill him. Why? Because he came with his own worldview. So number two is generational concern. Number three is we see that he has a national concern. Verse 13. 
says, after all that has happened to us, so he's moved from the individual to us, corporately, Israel, because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither a remnant nor survivor? His national concerns. Because if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about holiness. And I said holiness is, is supposed to be like, you know, there is nothing else like this. Like when you stand before the Grand Canyon, there's nothing else like this. I've never seen anything like this. Or, you know, you, you've been your whole life to Fort Supply Lake. I was out there yesterday. You know, it takes like five minutes to get from one side to the other. And then you see the ocean for the first time. You go, this is holy. It is unlike anything else I have ever seen. It's not even in the same category as Fort Supply Lake. This is what we ought to think when we see God. There is nothing else in His category. He's holy above all things. And in Leviticus, what He commands His people to be is holy as He is holy. The people should look at God's people and say, there is nothing like them. They are weird and they are odd. They talk about all these rules and yet they are the most grace-filled people I've ever seen. They have truth and they have love. They have grace and they have peace. They have mercy and they have justice. These are weird, holy people. They are unlike anything else I've seen. And what Ezra is concerned about is them losing that holiness. Because as they intermarry with the pagans, what happens? You cannot intermarry worldviews and expect to keep the worldview that you are supposed to have. And this is exactly what has happened in Israel's history over and over again. And after Ezra and Nehemiah, it will again happen. It is only Jesus Christ who comes and ultimately solves this for them. So Jesus, or, uh, Ezra rather says that the concern is national. And here's the last one. He has a cosmic concern. There is something that is beyond even what Ezra understands. There's a mystery we see in verse 15. Ezra asks a question. And in this question, it's kind of a wondering type of question. And we see that it is through the nation of Israel that this question can only be answered. Verse 15, it says, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. There's still some of us left. We have sinned against you over and over and over and over again, but you've saved a remnant of Israel. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. Ezra says, how can this be? You are just. You are a good judge. You are righteous. And we have sinned. We do not deserve to be existing. We do not deserve to be your people anymore. And yet here we are. We can't stand in your presence with our guilt. And yet here we are with our guilt and we're standing in your presence. How could you be both just and the justifier? How could this happen, God? And this really should be our attitude as Christians, friends. This humility as we stand before God. Sometimes people will come to me with this hypothetical situation that actually does not exist at all. And they'll say something like, Blake, what about the person uh, who lives on an island who's never heard about Jesus? They're perfect. They've never sinned at at all in their life. What what will God do with those people? And I would say, well, those people don't exist. There's not a single one of us who has not sinned. There's not a single one of us who deserves God's grace. That's actually the definition of grace. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. None of it. The question is not how could God send anybody to have justice for the rest of eternity? The question should be how could God allow anybody to live with him for all eternity? How could he be just? Right now, as we think about the shooting in Texas two weeks ago, what do we all want as a country? It's unifying. We want justice. We want somebody to pay for what has happened. And if a judge were to let everybody off the hook, we would not say that's a good judge. We would say that judge needs to lose his job because he's supposed to bring justice. In the same way, God is not a good judge if he doesn't bring justice. And yet he doesn't bring that justice. Why? 
Because he has a cosmic plan through the nation of Israel. And that is through the seed of, that began at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3 when we have the fall. There's a promise. And that promise, I'll read it for you. It's Genesis chapter 3. This is as God is giving the curse to Adam and Eve after they have fallen. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He's talking to Satan, the snake. He's giving the curse to Satan and he says this. I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, or literally it says, your seed and her seed, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You'll strike his heel, but he'll ultimately crush your head. And really the story of Israel is awaiting that seed. It starts with Adam and Eve through this family. We're waiting for a seed from this family. That family, uh, through that person rather, Eve as the person is supposed to have uh, the seed that comes from her. And then it turns into the family through Abraham. And there's going to be a seed from this family. And then it turns into a nation. The nation of Israel is to produce this seed that would not just be a blessing to Israel, but be a blessing to all of the world. And so the reason why God protects Israel is because that seed is to come from this nation. And we know about 500 years after Ezra and Nehemiah is written that that seed shows up in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who is revealed to us to be our Christ, our Lord and our Savior. He is the seed that would ultimately come. And how could God be both just and the justifier? John, you can go ahead and come back up as we're closing. Well, he could be both just and justifier by taking on the flesh of this world, by taking on the flesh of humanity, fully God and fully human, walking amongst us, living the perfect righteous life you and I could not live. He's the only one who had the status of righteous, the only one who in the court of God's laws would be called as innocent and good. And yet, what does he do? He pays the penalty that you and I were supposed to pay. He takes my status as sinner. I have the status of sinner. Jesus comes and he takes the place of me. My penalty was supposed to be death. And Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, pays for that penalty, fully turning away God's wrath from me, fully paying for all of the sins that I have committed and all the sins for all who have trusted in him. God is both the just and the justifier. He is a righteous judge. Jesus paid the penalty. The penalty was paid in full, but he is also a justifier full of grace and mercy and love for all who would come to him. Friends, let me pray for us. Jesus, we need you desperately in a world like this. God, we live in a confused world because right now all of our worldviews are all mixed up. And a lot of us don't know what is good and what is wrong, what is right, what is bad. And Jesus, those answers ought to be found in you. Your worldview is the worldview that we ought to align our lives with because you are the one who created the world. You are the one who reveals to us ultimate reality. You reveal to us what is true. And Jesus, you are good to us because as we sin against those values that you've set for us time and time again, we deserve punishment and yet you were punished so that we might have life. Jesus, you took the place we rightfully owed and you've given us a righteousness and a reward that we do not deserve. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And if you would, friends, take about 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed, and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? And reflect upon God's word preached today. Spirit, we pray for your guidance and we pray for your wisdom, and we pray for your courage to help us obey those things that you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together.
Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.